Hello and welcome to another episode of T-Rex Talk in which we talk about ATF stuff. So today we're going to be talking about, I guess, the definition of frame or receiver and identifications of firearms final rule is what this, uh, this particular rule change is called. The ATF announced this yesterday. Um, this is something that they've been working on for some time, but the final language... The final language of the final rule of the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives as relates to the definitions of frames and receivers is finally out. Now, most of you commented on the proposed rules about, uh, I guess it was about a year ago, it was last summer. They put up uh, a couple of proposed rule changes, one relating to frames and receivers, and one related to braces. And I recommended that you guys go and comment on all of those (laughs) recommendations, which I am slightly regretting at this point, but uh, I'll explain why in a moment. First of all, I would like to state, however, that I am not a lawyer, which means that I cannot offer any established legal opinions upon this document that would hold any weight in court. Uh, Also, even if I were a lawyer, I would not be able to do that. But um, I do recommend that you go and you listen to a lawyer who understands gun policy talk about this, and that is the Fudbusters YouTube channel. I'm going to put a link in the description so that you can follow that. That is actually what you should be listening to. You should listen to his analysis of this rule. Um, You should not listen to any analysis that came out yesterday because nobody had time to read the 364-page document and actually figure out what it means. And I would argue that even after reading the entire document, probably nobody has a super clear idea because this document is incredibly vague, which we'll also get into in some great... Uh, greater detail. But go listen to the Fudbusters analysis because it is actual legal analysis of the code. He has a very good idea of what it uh, what it actually could mean. Um, but I do think that uh, I'll just summarize real quick. Essentially, this does not change any existing AR-15s or handguns that are on the market. There is a new definition of what a frame or a receiver is. It is dumb, but any existing firearm pattern is uh, is pretty much grandfathered in. So what is a receiver? What is the actual firearm? What actually requires the serial number on, say, an AR-15 or a Glock or something that's been on the market? That doesn't technically change. Moving forwards, things are very hazy. And there are some pretty significant changes to what a frame or a receiver is, the level of serial number that is required, and then there's also a redefinition of which part of the suppressor or muffler or silencer actually gets the serial number. Um, But the main thing that changes here in this particular bill is ghost guns. Um, That's the thing that uh, got the most conversation when President Joe Biden announced this rule change and announced his uh, his new ATF nomination, who we'll talk about in a later episode once I've done some uh, more research on him, um, that ghost guns have been getting most of the conversation, the gun control conversation in the news, and ghost guns get most of the attention inside of this new BATF rule. That feels very much like a slapped on hasty addition. And to be honest, that's where most of the changes are. Again, AR-15 stay the same. The upper of the AR-15 does not need to be serialized. Barrels do not need to be serialized, etc. A lot of the stuff that was pitched as possible interpretation, possible new rules requiring more parts of the gun to be serialized, that didn't really make it into this particular rule change, even though there's options for the BATF to change its mind and continually redefine all the rules as they go, because that's just how bureaucratic agencies work. But the really significant thing is that those 80% lowers are significantly affected in this bill, and not, obviously, in a good way. Technically, you can still make privately manufactured firearms, 
but uh, the difficulty in owning or possessing a forged or unmachined lower plus a jig plus instructions plus tools uh, if you have all of those things in your house you have in your house a firearm and apparently that's not a cool thing even though if you make a privately manufactured firearm without any of those things somehow that's okay your privately manufactured firearm does not even need to have a serial number on it unless you take it to an ffl or you sell it or something like that but you know, if you have that receiver that is uncomplete, but then you also have the tools to complete it, specifically indexing jigs. They talk about indexing jigs a lot, associated templates, equipment, tools, instructions, guides, or other marketing materials that are sold, distributed, or possessed with this item or kit, or otherwise made available by the seller or distributor of the item or kit to the purchaser or the recipient of the item or kit, etc., etc., etc. The final rule provides detailed examples of when an unfinished receiver or receiver billet, blank, or parts kit may be considered a frame or receiver and an actual firearm. I actually disagree with that. I don't think this is particularly clear at all. But apparently that's a problem. Again, you can make a privately manufactured firearm and you can possess the manufactured firearm that is complete and functioning without a serial number. But if you have a partially completed frame and you also have the instructions and you also have the tools, you have all of that stuff in one place, apparently that's a problem. And this is, uh, this is very unclear. Now, I was going to say, uh, going back uh, to when I mentioned the comments, I want to thank you guys for adding comments. But I will say that the ATF responding to all of the comments that they received definitely made this document a lot longer and a lot harder to read. And it certainly uh, did not feel to me that the ATF adequately addressed all of the concerns raised in the comments, but they did do a reasonably good job, I think, at mentioning the comments and, you know, did a pretty good job, I would say, of mentioning the actual concerns raised by the commenters and then saying, they weren't valid without actually providing a whole lot of argumentation. So uh, a big one is uh, that these rules were going to be vague. Commenters suggested that the rules would in fact be vague. And uh, yes, those commenters were 100% right. Um, and let's go here. I'm reading now from page 96. And not being a legal scholar, I will instead just kind of mock this. I'm just going to kind of mystery science theater this particular page 96 here. Uh, numerous commenters objected to the new definitions on grounds that the definitions are so vague that they violate the due process clause of the Fifth Amendment. Um, I would agree. I think this is an excellent concern raised by commenters. Well done. Here, the commenters stated the definition of firearms, splitter modular frame receivers, and readily offer no clear guidance or clarity in determining the scope of the terms and are therefore impermissibly vague. Yeah, 100%. Readily convertible is, uh, is very vague. But page 97, they say the department does not believe the term readily is vague. So there you go. Not vague. To avoid any doubt, nevertheless, the final rule provides additional clarity on the application of readily. The rule now expressly excludes from the definitions of frame and receiver a forging, casting, printing, extrusion, unmachined body, or similar article that has not yet reached a stage of manufacture where it is clearly identifiable as an unfinished component part of a weapon, e.g. an unformed block of metal, liquid polymer, or other raw material. So... Raw materials, not firearms. This is a very helpful clarification. That's a pretty good definition. Raw materials like liquid polymers that have yet to take on any shape whatsoever, not guns. This is excellent. Now, 
they go on to explain what is a gun. And it is basically anything that is not that. A partially complete billet or blank of a frame or receiver is a frame or receiver when it is sold, distributed, or possessed with a compatible jigger template, allowing a person using online instructions and common hand tools to complete the frame or receiver efficiently, quickly, and easily to function as a frame or receiver. But again, no definition of efficient, quick, easy, etc. And then they, they cite a couple of different cases. Fox versus TV Stations Incorporated in uh, 2012 says that a law is impermissibly vague if it fails to provide a person of ordinary intelligence fair notice of what is prohibited. Um, now, I consider myself a person of extremely ordinary intelligence. And I think that there is a huge difference between raw materials like liquid polymer and something that is easily converted into a gun using common hand tools. There are many, many stages in between there. It is not clear to me at all what readily convertible means when stage one is liquid polymer and stage two is something that has instructions with it. They quote from Ward versus Rock Against Racism. Uh, and this is a 1989 case. Uh, the quote is, Condemned to the use of words, we can never expect mathematical certainty from our language. Uh, and I agree with that, except for the fact that we are describing mechanical manufacturing processes that can be defined uh, by mathematical certainty and numbers. You can write in the exact tolerances that are required to indicate when a firearm receiver is functional or not functional. Uh, pretty precisely. There's a whole science behind it called metrology, which are used to actually measure stuff so that you can define these things. And I think that um, that would be kind of nice. And uh, they go on uh, talking about vagueness and talking about what the definition of readily is without actually giving a definition. It gets rather tiresome. Now, uh, I'm complaining about how long the ATF spends addressing all of these comments without actually properly addressing them. Uh, but I am very glad that all of you did comment because it is clear, um, reading this document, um, well, clear is entirely the wrong word. It becomes somewhat apparent as you wade through all of this stuff that responses to the comments actually did change the rules from what was proposed uh, when they asked for comments to what is here now. So there have actually been some really significant uh, small victories in the fact that commenters actually changed what is going to be enacted in this particular new rule change. Now, what the government is doing here, what the BATF is doing here is something that is technically within their level of responsibility. They are given a law, they're given legislation, and they are told to uphold the legislation, and they have the ability to define small policies that will help them to uphold that law. So they will actually fulfill the responsibility that they are given using the small level of discretion that they are allowed within that framework. And this rule change is not a small policy tweak inside of the jurisdiction that they've been given. This is a gigantic shift. This is a huge, huge change to the way that firearms are defined. This is a huge change to the way that suppressors are defined. This is a huge change in the way that records are supposed to be kept. This is even a huge change in the way that serial numbers are supposed to be applied to guns. So right now, firearm manufacturers are allowed to apply unique serial numbers to guns and they can be whatever they want. But there's a new twist in here. If somebody does make a manufactured, privately manufactured firearm, which is A-OK, -okay, this, this 
goes on and on and on to say that this will not in this new rule change will not in any way prevent people from making their privately manufactured firearms, even though they won't be able to use any kits, instructions, indexing, jigs, etc. in order to do so. Um, but people are a-okay to make those privately manufactured firearms. I think they should probably just switch to 3D printing because that's going to be the easiest way to do it without those indexing jigs that the ATF keeps mentioning. But if you take your privately manufactured firearm to an FFL, either a gunsmith, somebody to do some repairs or anything like that, and it is in their possession overnight, they must serialize this privately manufactured firearm. And they must serialize it not only with a unique serial number to that specific weapon, but they must serialize it with a prefix that is their FFL identifier. And the document goes back and forth between stuff that is incredibly vague and hard to actually define and stuff that is really minutely spelled out but leaves huge gaps in the way that you actually go about complying with the stuff that is minutely spelled out. And so the idea that this document here is actually something that is small, something that is within the scope of a regulatory or enforcement agency to do within the bounds of the law is, I think, pretty laughable. I mean, the sheer length of the document itself, I think, is something that should raise red flags. I will admit that part of this rule change does in fact address a very real problem, which is the previous definition of frame and receiver was not good. It was not clear, and it did not really apply to a whole bunch of firearms that are on the market, including striker-fired weapons or AR-15s. And so a slight modification to that definition was definitely in order so that there could be less vagueness. A 360-page document that adds a whole bunch of new caveats and clarifiers and rebuttals to internet comments does not, in fact, clarify things. And again, the large focus of this actual rule change isn't on the classification of AR-15s or Glocks or weapons on the market at all, but on those 80% lowers, those weapon kits that are available for sale right now going to have an extremely negative effect on the people that manufacture those kits, and it's going to have an extremely negative effect on the people that have to deal with these new regulations, which is actually going to be a lot of people. I'm going to skip down to to 283. Page 283 talks about um, the impact that this will have on small businesses. Uh, Many commenters asserted that the rule will have a significant impact on small businesses. Other commenters argued that robust small business analysis was not performed. Some commenters stated the rule will have a negative impact on many small businesses, including those owned by veterans and families. So I I will point out that it is... um, there's not a whole lot of editorializing when the ATF uh, folks that wrote this rule summarize the comments that are made uh, by the commenters. I don't think they actually did a a terrible job of representing them. Uh, They didn't go overboard and straw man people, although they certainly left some of the more interesting and colorful comments that I remember out. And they definitely read individual comments. One commenter here, and I'm down on on page 284, it says, One commenter stated that the real cost of the proposed rule is not the lost revenue of the affected companies, but the loss in value of these companies, which hurts the company's owners. And the ATF failed to show the anticipated number of jobs lost and value associated with with the loss. These These are good comments. The department response is as follows. The ATF agrees that different entities will experience a range of costs as outlined by the different chapters of the RIA, and the ATF revised the regulatory flexibility analysis to describe the largest impact on small businesses, which is that some businesses will no longer continue operations, period. The IRFA has been updated to reflect these costs. 
Ouch. The ATF concurs that large and small entities may require time to research and understand regulations. However, this is already an existing cost of regulations in this industry in general and is not a new requirement specific to this rule. Therefore, it is not considered a cost of this rule. Uh, Which is crazy, because this is an additional 360 pages of rules that have to be added on top of all the existing rules. And there are significant levels of compliance uh, expense that are on top of this rule that were not a part of previous rules. So I myself have incurred a significant uh, mental cost just uh, reading this document over the last couple of days. So yeah, it is a voluminous document containing considerable vagueness. And the way that this generally works is enforcement agencies like the BATFE, or perhaps I should say especially the BATFE, tend to err on the most severe reading of the law. They tend to enforce the law at its most severe interpretation available based upon the text. And then when that case uh, eventually goes to court, Uh, It is up to the judge to determine how he is going to interpret the reading of this particular law. And generally, the courts read it on a much more lenient way. In fact, in certain cases, there are certain requirements for judges to read the law based on its most lenient possible interpretation. So this is going to require a large number of legal tests, and there are going to be a large number of legal tests. There appear to be things that will not change because they are completely grandfathered in, and then there are things that will change immediately upon the activation of this rule in 120 days. Uh, It is not clear exactly which things fall into which categories because, for example, 80% parts lowered kits are definitely pre-existing weapon platforms that theoretically get grandfathered into certain categories, but they don't because they are shipped as kits. And then there are other things like Air 15 uppers, which are shipped as kits and also come with instructions, but because they are Air 15s and mentioned specifically, they're grandfathered in and have no changes for serialization or compliance requirements whatsoever. And so... All of this stuff is going to have to be tested in courts of law. And that means that people are actually going to uh, have to be busted by the ATF and go before judges to argue their case that this is a preposterous and ridiculous rule change that serves no function whatsoever except political theater. Um, and that and that was really the way that this, this bill was announced. Um, Joe Biden came out on the lawn and he talked about ghost guns and how terrifying they were. And again, ghost gun is a pretty ridiculous term because it has changed over the years. Uh, and in fact, even the reporting requirements have changed. So it went from from being privately manufactured firearms that did not have serial numbers until now it uh, the reporting requirements are basically any firearms that do not have serial numbers so that would include privately manufactured firearms that would also include properly manufactured firearms that had serial numbers but the serial numbers were ground off by a guy who had a dremel in his hand for 2 minutes Or it could also include firearms that uh, were made before 1968 when firearms, uh, mass manufactured firearms were not required to have serial numbers either. So the number of reported, quote, ghost guns uh, could include all of these different categories. And again, the, the ghost guns that are talked about by the White House are ghost guns that have been confiscated. These are not weapons that have been used in a crime. Only a few of them have been used in a crime. And I would make... An estimation that it's predominantly not privately manufactured firearms that are being used for homicides. It is old guns or guns that have had the serial numbers removed. 
And obviously, this rule change is not going to affect the kind of people who commit homicides with stolen weapons that have had the serial numbers ground off. Not only does this bill not address that eventuality, but uh, the kind of people who do that don't really pay any attention to 360-page documents changing the way that FFLs are going to serialize stuff that they already dremeled off. The whole thing is ridiculous and preposterous, and I'm annoyed that I read 360 pages of the language and didn't come out having really understood anything any clear. And I'm also annoyed that I watched the entire video of Joe Biden announcing it, where he trotted out the (laughs) same jokes about deer wearing Kevlar, which is very tiresome. And he trotted out the same comment that people were not allowed to buy certain kinds of guns in the past, like cannons, which is ridiculous. People have technically been allowed to buy smoothbore cannons for the entire history of the United States, even today. I guess I'm not surprised that Joe Biden keeps bringing these things up. What I'm surprised by is that people keep putting them on his teleprompter. Although he did say one thing that I really agreed with. Uh, When referring to these weapons, he said, they are weapons of war, and there's nothing recreational about it. So I'm glad that we're on the same page there. Or maybe he just misread the teleprompter and used the wrong emphasis at that point. It's not very clear. The other thing that's not very clear is exactly why this is happening right now. Is this a big, bold, anti-gun move uh, so that they can win some favor for Democratic candidates? Something that this administration is doing, the Democrats can be excited about, so they can be encouraged to come out and vote for positive change and movement that is happening in these upcoming midterm elections? Or... Is this a kind of a a desperate move to get this stuff enacted and to get his new ATF director appointed uh, before the midterm elections and they potentially lose the House and Senate? It's not clear to me, and uh, we'll just kind of have to wait and see. And then the actual effect of this rule change is another thing that we are going to have to just wait and see. If this rule is enacted and it becomes new ATF policy, it really isn't going to affect that much. It isn't going to affect the big companies that make AR-15s. It isn't going to affect Glock. It isn't going to affect SIG. It isn't going to affect anybody that predominantly makes a large catalog of pre-existing weapon patterns. But it is going to add a very significant layer of confusion and liability for small companies, particularly small companies that make 80% lower kits. But any small FFL that does gunsmithing, any small FFL that isn't going to know what to do with privately manufactured firearms when people bring them in for a serial number and a tweak, they're probably not going to take on any of this liability. And so what's going to happen is people who have made privately manufactured firearms, people that have made 80% lower kits, instead of them actually going through these proper legal channels that the Democrats are certain that ghost guns are going to go through now, which is somehow going to diminish crime because serialized weapons are considerably less deadly and not used in homicides, Uh, It's actually going to backfire. What's going to happen is people who make privately manufactured firearms are not going to be able to take them to FFLs, are not going to be able to get them serialized, are not going to be able to sell them through the proper channels. They're going to sell them through the gun show loophole, and uh, the exact opposite of what this bill is supposed to accomplish will actually come to pass. Now, that being said, I think that it's extremely important that uh, our federal legislators actually call for the ATF to explain why it has taken upon itself to redefine its restrictions, redefine its jurisdiction so widely that it completely changed the scope of what it is allowed to do under the existing laws. It is entirely up to our legislators to prevent these 
departments from getting so far off of the reservation. So I think that it's worth calling your representatives and telling them that they must do this, reminding them that they are the only ones that can make law and allowing these different bureaucratic institutions to create essentially new laws of the land uh, is to abdicate their authority completely. Am I hopeful that that's going to actually cause a lot of stuff to happen? Ah, not really. But it is interesting that we do have some midterms coming up, and it's possible that if you get a bunch of people that are Republicans running for re-election, wanting to participate in the red wave, or at least wanting to maintain their seats and not get primaried by a much more attractive, younger, Second Amendment-friendly candidate who is potentially running this year, who knows? Maybe they will suddenly find their conscience and uh, start listening to Thomas Massey, who has been pushing back against this rule change already. So we will see what happens. If nothing happens, this thing is going to go into effect and in, I believe, 120 days. Um, but for actual legal analysis of it, again, I refer you to Fudbusters. And I think in these podcasts, I'm going to try to recommend you to some more resources because every time I come across an issue like this, uh, I realize that you guys would be far better off listening to the people who actually know what they're talking about and can provide uh, more interesting analysis of it than I can. So next week, maybe we'll be talking about something that I know about. Maybe we'll be talking about something else and I will just refer you to better and more educated podcasts so that you can be better informed. Uh, and that'll be, that'll be the purpose of this one. Uh, so stay tuned.